Disc 4 I suppose you... began Julian, and then stopped as Dick gave an exclamation. I've got an idea, he said. Suppose that caravan was moved for another reason. Suppose someone was making a row inside the van. Someone shouting for help, say? Gringo would have to move it away from the rest of the camp in case that someone was heard. There was a pause, and then Spiky nodded. Yes, it could be, he said. I've never known Gringo move his caravan away from the camp before. Shall I do a bit of snooping for you? Yes, said Julian, excited. My word, it would be a bit of luck if we could find George so quickly and so near us too. A fair camp would be a fine place to hide her, of course. Thank goodness we found that bit of paper with Gringo written on it. Let's all go to the fair this afternoon, said Dick. Timmy, too. He'd smell out George at once. Hadn't we better tell the police first, said Julian. At once, Spiky and Joe got up in alarm. Spiky looked as if he were going to run away immediately. Don't you get the police, Julian, said Joe urgently. You won't get anything more out of Spiky if you do. Not a thing. I'm going, said Spiky, still looking terrified. No, you're not, said Dick and caught hold of him. We shan't go to the police. They might frighten off Gringo and make him smuggle George away at once. I've no doubt he has plans to do so at any minute. We shan't say a word, so sit down and be sensible. You can believe him, Joe told Spiky. He's straight, see? Spiky sat down, still looking wary. If you're coming to the fair, come at four, he said. It's half-day closing today for the towns around, and the place will be packed. If you want to do any snooping, you won't be noticed in that crowd. Right, said Julian. We'll be there. Look out for us, Spiky, in case you've got any news. Spiky then left, and the boys couldn't help smiling at his back view. The spikes of hair at the top of his head were so very noticeable. You'd better stay to lunch with us, Joe, said Dick and the delighted girl beamed all over her face. "'Will Joanna's cousin mind you not being back to dinner?' asked Julian. "'No, I said I wouldn't be back all day,' said Joe. "'It's still school holidays, you see. "'Anyway, I can't stand that Jane. "'She moons about all the time, and she's got some of my clothes on too.' Joe sounded so indignant about Berta that the boys had to laugh. They all went back to Kirin Cottage and found Joanna and Anne hard at work in the house. "'Well, you monkey,' said Joanna to Joe. "'Up to tricks as usual, I hear. "'Throwing stones at people's windows in the middle of the night. "'You just try that on my window and see what happens to you. "'Now, put on that apron and help round a bit. "'How's Jane?' Joanna was most excited to hear about the boys' latest ideas as to where George might be. Julian gave her a warning. But no ringing up the police behind our backs this time, Joanna, he said. This is something best done by Dick and me. Can't I come with Sally? asked Anne. We can't possibly take Sally, said Dick, in case Gringo's about and recognises her. 
So you'd better stay and look after her, and we'll take Timmy. He would be sure to smell where George is if she's hidden anywhere in the camp. But I think she's probably in Gringo's own caravan. Timmy pricked up his ears every time he heard George's name mentioned. He was a very miserable dog indeed, and kept running to the front gate, hoping to see George coming along. Whenever they missed him, they knew where to find him, lying mournfully on George's empty bed, probably with an equally mournful Sally beside him. The boys and Joe set off to the fair about half past three on their bicycles. Joe rode Anne's this time, and Timmy ran valiantly beside them. Joe glanced at Dick's bicycle from time to time, proud of its brilliant look. How well she had cleaned it that morning! They came to the fair. You can put your bikes up against Spikey's caravan, said Joe. They'll be safe there. Will you pay, and then we'll get in straight away? You needn't pay for me. I'm going through the gap in the hedge. I'm Spikey's friend, so it's all right. She gave Dick her bicycle and disappeared. Julian paid and went in at the gate. They saw Joe waving wildly to them from the side of the big field and wheeled the three bicycles over to her. Timmy followed closely at their heels. Hello, said Spikey, appearing suddenly. See you soon. I've got to go and tend to the roundabout. I've got a bit of news, but not much. That's Gringo's caravan over there, the double one, the big van in front, little van behind. He nodded his head to where a most magnificent caravan stood, right away from the rest of the camp. There were people milling about all round the other vans, but there was nobody at all by Gringo's. Evidently, no one dared to go too near. I vote we buy a ball at one of the stands and then go and play near Gringo's caravan, said Dick in a low voice. Then one of us will throw the ball too hard and it will go near the van and we'll somehow manage to get a peep inside. Timmy can go sniffing round while we play. If George is there, he'll bark the place down. Jolly good idea, said Julian. Come on, Joe and keep your eyes open all the time, in case you've got to warn us of danger. Chapter 18 Spikey is very helpful. The two boys and Joe, with Timmy at their heels, wandered round the fair to find somewhere to buy a ball. There seemed to be none for sale, so they had a go at a hoopla stall and Julian managed to get a ring round a small red ball. Just the thing. It was a big and noisy fair, and hundreds of people from the nearby towns had come on this shop's closing day to enjoy the fun. The roundabout played its loud, raucous music all the time. Swings went to and fro, the dodgem cars banged and bumped one another as usual, and men went round shouting their wares, Balloons, giant balloons, fifty pence each. Ice cream, all flavours. Tell your fortune, lady. I'll tell it true as can be. Joe was very much at home in the fair. She had been brought up in one and knew all the tricks of the trade. Timmy was rather amazed at the noise and kept close to the boys, his tail still down because he could not forget that George was missing. 
Now, let's play our little game of ball, said Julian. Come on, Tim. And if we get into any trouble, just growl and show your teeth, see? The three of them, with Timmy, went to the clear space of field that separated the magnificent caravan from the rest of the camp. A man at a nearby stall called to them. Hey, you'll get into trouble if you play there. But they took no notice, and he shrugged his shoulders and began to shout his wares. They threw the ball to one another, and then Julian flung it so wildly that it ran right up to the wheels of the front caravan of the pair. In a trice, Dick and Joe were after it. Joe leapt up on a wheel and looked in at the big window, while Dick ran to the small van that was attached behind the big one. A quick glance assured Joe that the big caravan was empty. The interior was furnished in a most luxurious way and looked like a very fine bed-sitting room. She leapt down. Dick peered into the window of the smaller van. At first he thought there was no one there, and then he saw a pair of very fierce, angry eyes looking at him. The eyes of a small, bent old woman with untidy hair. She looked rather like a witch, Dick thought. She was sitting sewing on a bunk, and, as he looked in, she shook her fist at him and called out something he couldn't hear. He jumped down and joined the others. No one at all in the big van, said Joe. Only a witch-like old woman in the other, reported Dick, in deep disappointment. Unless George is pushed under a bunk or squashed into a cupboard, she's certainly not there. Timmy doesn't seem interested in the caravans at all, does he? said Julian. I'm sure if George really was in one of those caravans, he'd bark and try to get inside. Yes, I think he would, said Dick. Hello, there's somebody coming out of the second van. It's the old lady. She's in a fine old temper. So she was. She came down the steps to the van, shouting and shaking her fist at them. Tim, go and find, go and find in that van, said Julian suddenly as the old woman came towards them. The three of them stood their ground as the old woman came right up. They couldn't understand a word she said, partly because she had no teeth and partly because she spoke a mixture of many languages. Anyway, it was quite obvious that she was ticking them off for daring to play near the two vans. Timmy had understood what Julian had said and had slipped inside the second van. He was there for half a minute and then he barked. The boys jumped and Dick made a move towards the van. Then Timmy appeared, dragging something behind him with his teeth. He tried to bark at the same time, but he couldn't. He dragged the coat-like thing right down to the ground before the old woman was on him, screaming in a high voice and hitting him. She pulled the garment away and went up the steps, kicking out at the surprised Timmy as he tried to pull it away. The door slammed. If that old woman hadn't been old, Timmy would have soon shown her he was top dog, said Dick. Whatever was he pulling out of the van? Come over here, out of sight of the van, said Julian urgently. Didn't you recognise it, Dick? It was George's dressing gown. My word, said Dick, stopping in surprise. Yes, 
You're right, it was. Phew! What does that mean exactly? George certainly isn't in those vans, or Timmy would have found her. I sent him in to see if he could smell that George had been hidden there, said Julian. I thought he would bark excitedly if he smelt her scent anywhere, on the bunk perhaps. I never guessed he'd find her dressing gown and drag it out to show us. Good old Timmy, clever old Timmy, said Dick, patting the dog, whose tail was now at half-mast instead of right down. He had at least found George's dressing gown, but how surprising to find it in that caravan. Why on earth didn't they take the dressing gown with them when they took George off, wondered Julian. There's no doubt that she has been in that caravan. She was taken straight there the night before last, I expect. Where is she now? She must have been dressed differently, said Dick. They must have had to dress her properly when they took her somewhere else. After all, she was only in pyjamas and dressing gown. Joe was listening to all this, puzzled and worried. She nudged Dick. Spikey's beckoning to us, she said. They went over to the roundabout boy, whose father was now in charge of the noisy machine. Spikey took them into his caravan, a small and rather dirty one, in which he lived with his father. I saw Gringo's old ma chasing you, he said with his lopsided grin. What was your dog dragging out of the van? They told him. He nodded. I've been asking round a bit cautiously, he said just to see if anyone had heard anything from Gringo's caravan. And the fellow whose caravan is nearest told me he heard shouts and yells two nights ago. He reckoned it was someone in Gringo's van, but he's too scared of Gringo to go and interfere, of course. That would be George yelling, said Dick. Well, then Gringo's vans were moved the next day, right away from the other vans, said Spikey. And this afternoon... Before the fair opened, Gringo got his car and towed the little van, the second one, out of the field and set off with it. We all wondered why, but he told somebody it needed repairing. Phew! And George was inside, said Dick. What a cunning way of moving her off to another hiding place. When did the van come back? asked Julian. Just before you came, said Spikey. I don't know where it went. It was gone an hour, I should think. An hour, said Dick. Well, suppose it goes at an average of 25 miles an hour. You can't go very fast if you're towing something. That would mean he had gone somewhere about 12 miles or so away and come back the same distance, making about an hour's drive, allowing for a stop when they arrived at the place they had to leave her at. Yes, said Julian, but there are lots of places within the radius of 12 miles. Where's Gringo's car? said Dick suddenly. Over there, under that big tarpaulin, said Spikey. It's a silver-grey one, American, and very striking. He thinks the world of it, Gringo does. I'm going to have a peep at it, said Julian, and strode off. He came to the tarpaulin which covered the car right to the ground. He lifted it and was just about to look under it when a man ran up, shouting. Here, you! Leave that alone! 
You'll be turned out of the fair if you mess about with things that don't concern you. But Timmy was with Julian, and he turned and growled so fiercely that the man stopped in a hurry. Julian had plenty of time to take a good look under the tarpaulin. Yes, the car was silver grey, a big American one, and the wings were bright blue. Julian took a quick look at the two left-hand ones and saw a deep scratch on one of them. Before he dropped the tarpaulin, he had time to glance at the tyres. He was sure they had the same pattern as those shown in the wheel tracks he had sketched. He had checked the sketch with Jim at Kiring Garage, who had told him they were an American design. Yes, this was the car that had hidden in the clearing the night before last. The car that had turned with difficulty and made those deep ruts. The car that had taken George away and this afternoon had towed away the caravan with her inside to hide her somewhere else. He dropped the tarpaulin and walked back to the others, excited, taking no notice of the rude things that the nearby man called out to him. It's the car, all right, said Julian. Now, where did it go this afternoon? If only we could find out. It's such a very striking car that anyone would notice it, especially as it was towing a rather nice little caravan, said Dick. Yes, but we can't go round the countryside asking everyone we meet if they've noticed a silver-grey car with blue wings, said Julian. Let's go back home and get a map and see the lie of the country round about, said Dick. Spiky, which way did the car turn when it went out of the field gate? Towards the east, said Spiky, on the road to Big Twillingham. Well, that's something to know, said Dick. Come on, let's get our bikes. Thanks a lot, Spiky. You've been a terrific help. We'll let you know what happens. Call on me if ever you want more help, said Spiky proudly, and gave them a smart little salute, bobbing his head so that his spikes of hair shook comically. The three of them rode off, with Timmy running beside them again. As soon as they got home, they told Anne and Joanna all they had found out. Joanna was for ringing up the police at once again, but Julian stopped her. I think perhaps we can do this next bit of work better than they can, he said. We're going to try and find out where the car went, Joanna. Now, where are the maps of the district? They found them and began to pore over them. Joe was quite lost when it came to map reading. She could find her way anywhere, day or night, but not with a map. Now, here's the road to Big Twillingham and Little Twillingham, he said. Let's list carefully all the roads the car could take from there. My word, it's a job. Chapter 19 An Exciting Plan After 15 minutes, they had six towns on their list, all of which could have been reached in about half an hour from Big Twillingham, which was two miles away from the fair. "'And now what do you propose to do, Jew?' asked Dick. "'Bike over to all the towns and ask if anyone has seen the car?' "'No, we can't possibly do that,' said Julian. 
I'm going down to the garage to see our friend Jim and get his help. I'm going to ask him to ring up any friends he has in the garages in those towns and ask if they've seen the car passing through. Won't you think it's a bit funny? asked Anne. Yes, but he won't mind how funny it is if we pay the telephone calls and give him some money for his trouble, said Julian, folding up the map. And what's more, he won't ask any questions either. He'll probably think it's some silly bet we've got on with one another. Jim was quite willing to ring up the garages for them. He knew boys working in main garages in four of the towns, and he knew the hall porter of a hotel in the fifth town, but he knew no one in the sixth. That doesn't matter, he said. We'll ring up the garage in the high street there and just ask whoever comes to the phone. Jim rang up the garage in Hillingford and had a rather cheeky conversation with his friend there. He put the receiver down. No go, he said. He says no car like that came through Hillingford or he'd have noticed it that time of day. I'll ring up Jake at Green's Garage in Lowington now. That's no go either, he said after a minute's telephone conversation. I'll try my hall porter now. He's a cousin of mine. The hall porter had some news. Yes, Jim kept saying. Yes, that's the one. Yes. Yes. You heard him say that, did you? Thanks a lot. What is it? asked Dick eagerly when Jim at last put down the receiver. Pat, that's the hall porter, says he was off duty this afternoon and went to buy some cigarettes at a little shop in the main street of Gracefield, where his hotel is, and as he stood talking to the fellow in the shop, an enormous car drew up at the curb, silver grey with blue wings, an American car, left-hand driving all. Yes, what next? said Julian eagerly. Well... The driver got out to get some cigarettes at the shop. He had dark glasses on and a big gold ring on his finger. Pat noticed that. That must be the man who asked about us at the tea shop in Kirin, said Julian, remembering. Go on, Jim, this is wonderful. Well, Pat's interested in big cars, so he went out and had a good look at it, said Jim. He said the car had its blinds drawn down at the back, so he couldn't see inside. The fellow with the dark glasses came out and got into the driver's seat again. He called out to whoever was behind and said, Which way now? Yes. Yes. Did you hear the answer? said Julian. Somebody called back and said, Not far now, intertwining, turn to the left, and it's the house on the hill. Well, of all the luck, said Dick. Would that be where Ju... He stopped at a sharp nudge from Julian, and remembered that he mustn't give too much away to the helpful Jim. Julian passed over a pound to the pleased garage boy, who pocketed it at once, grinning. Now, you just come along to me if you want to know about any more cars, he said. I'll phone all over the place for you. Thanks a lot. They sped back to Kieran Cottage, too excited even to talk. They flung their bicycles against the wall and ran in to tell Anne and Joanna. Timmy and Sally sensed their excitement and danced round, barking loudly. We know where George is, cried Dick. We know, we know. Joanna and Anne listened eagerly. 
Well, Julian, said Joanna in admiration, it was really smart of you to make Jim phone up like that. The police couldn't have done better. What are you going to do now? Ring up that sergeant? No, said Julian. I'm so afraid that if the police get moving on this now, they'll alarm Gringo and he'll spirit George away somewhere else. Dick and I will go to this place tonight and see if we can't get hold of George and bring her back. After all, it's only an ordinary house, I imagine. And as Gringo doesn't suspect that anyone knows where George is, he won't be on the lookout. Good, said Dick. Good, good, good. I'm coming too, said Joe. You are not, said Julian at once. That's flat. You are not coming, Joe. But I shall take Timmy, of course. Joe said no more, but looked so sulky that Anne laughed. <laughs> Cheer up, Joe. You can keep me and Sally company. Oh, Julian, wouldn't it be wonderful to find George and rescue her? There was more map reading as the boys decided which was the best way to cycle over to Graysfield. Look out the best torches we've got, Anne, will you? said Dick. And let me see, how can we bring George back once we've got her? On my bike step, I think, though I know it's not allowed. But this is very urgent. We can't very well take a third bike with us. Gosh, isn't this exciting? We really ought to ring up the police, said Joanna, who kept saying this at intervals. Joanna, you sound like a parrot, said Julian. If we're not back by morning, you can ring up all the police in the country if you want to. There's been another phone call from your aunt today, Julian. I nearly forgot to tell you, said Joanna. Your uncle is better and they are coming home as soon as possible. Not this evening, I hope, said Julian in alarm. Did they tell you anything about Mr Elber Wright, Berta's father? Oh, He's hanging on to his secrets quite happily now that he knows it isn't Berta who is kidnapped, said Joanna. I don't know if the kidnappers even know they've got the wrong girl yet. It's all very hush-hush. Even your uncle and aunt are having to obey the police. Your poor aunt is so terribly upset about George. Yes, she must be frightfully worried, said Julian soberly. We've had so much excitement today that I've almost forgotten to worry. And anyway, when you're able to do something, things don't seem so bad. Be careful you don't go and do too much and land yourself in trouble, said Joanna darkly. I'll be careful, said Julian, winking at Dick. I say, isn't it nearly supper time? I feel awfully hungry. Well, we haven't had any tea. No wonder we're hungry. Would you like bacon and eggs for a treat, said Joanna, and there was a chorus of approval at once. Timmy and Sally wagged their tails, as if Joanna's question applied to them too. We'll set off as soon as it's dark, said Julian. Joe, you'd better go home after supper. They'll be worrying about you. All right, said Joe, pleased to have been asked to supper, but still sulky at being forbidden to go with Julian and Dick that night. Joe disappeared after supper with many messages to Berta from Dick, Julian, Anne and Sally. And I bet she doesn't give a single one of them, said Dick.
Now, let's have a game before we set off, Julian. Just to take our minds off the excitement. I'm getting all worked up. Joanna went up to bed at ten because she was tired. Anne stayed up to see the boys off. You will be careful, she kept saying. You will be careful, won't you? Oh, dear. I think it's almost worse to stay behind and wonder what's happening to you than to go with you and find out. At last the time came for the boys to go. It was a quarter to twelve, and, except for a small moon, it was a dark night with great clouds looming up, often hiding the moon. Come on, Timmy, said Dick. We're going to find George. Woof, said Timmy, delighted. Sally woofed too, and was most disappointed at being left behind. The boys wheeled their bicycles to the front gate. So long, Anne, said Dick. Go to bed and hope to see George when you wake up. They set off on their bicycles, with Timmy loping along beside them. They soon arrived at the field where the fair was, and went swinging away to the east, following the road the silver-grey car had gone that afternoon. They knew the way by heart, for they had studied the map so well. As they passed the signposts, they felt their excitement beginning to mount. Graysfield next, said Dick at last. Soon be there, Timmy. You're not getting tired, are you? They came into Graysfield silently. The town was asleep, and not a single light showed in any window. A policeman suddenly loomed up out of the shadows, but when he saw two boys cycling, he did not stop them. Now, intertwining village, turn to the left and look for the house on the hill, said Dick. They rode through the tiny, silent village of Twining and took the lane to the left. It led up a steep, narrow lane. The boys had to get off and walk because the hill was too much for them. There's the house, said Julian, suddenly whispering. Look, through those trees. My word, it looks a dark and lonely one. They came to some enormous iron gates, but when they tried to open them, they found them locked. A great wall ran completely round the grounds. They followed it a little way, leaving their bicycles against a tree by the gate, but it was soon certain that nobody could climb a wall like that. Blow, said Julian. Blow. What about the gates? whispered Dick. Then he glanced round him nervously, hearing a twig crack. Did you hear that? There's nobody following us, is there? No, don't get the jitters, for goodness sake, said Julian. What was it you were saying? I said, what about the gates, said Dick. I don't see why we can't climb over them, do you? Nobody would do that in the daytime, they'd be seen. But I can't see why we can't do it now. They didn't look too difficult, just ordinary wrought iron ones. Yes, of course, said Julian. That's a brainwave. Come on. Chapter 20 A Thrilling Time The two boys went back to the gates. Dick turned round and looked behind him two or three times. I do hope nobody is shadowing us, he said. I keep on feeling somebody's watching us all the time. Oh, stuff, 
said Julian impatiently. Look, here are the gates. Give me a leg up and I'll be over in a jiffy. Dick gave him a shove and Julian climbed over the gates without much difficulty. They were bolted, not locked. He slid the great bolts carefully and opened one gate a little for Dick and Timmy. Timmy can't be left behind, he said, and he certainly couldn't climb this gate. They kept to the shadowed side of the drive as they walked up towards the house. The small moon came out from behind a cloud as they came near. It was an old house with high chimneys, an ugly house with narrow windows that seemed like watching eyes. Dick glanced behind him suddenly and Julian saw him. Got the jitters again, he said impatiently. Dick, don't be an ass. You know perfectly well that if anyone was shadowing us, Timmy would hear them and go for them at once. Yes, I know, said Dick. I'm an idiot, but I've just got that feeling tonight. The feeling that someone else is there. They came right up to the house. How shall we get in? whispered Julian. The doors are all sure to be locked. We'll have to try the windows. They tiptoed silently round the big house. As Julian had said, the doors were all locked. The windows were all fastened too, well and truly fastened. Not one was open or could be opened. If this is a house belonging to Gringo, he must be able to hide plenty of things in absolute safety. Bolted gates, high walls, locked doors, fastened windows, said Dick. No burglar could possibly get in. And neither can we, said Julian desperately. We've been all round the house three times now. There's no door, no window we can get in. No balcony to climb up to, no ivy to hang on to. Nothing. Let's go round once more, said Dick. We might have missed something. So once more they went round and discovered something curious when they got to the kitchen quarters. The moon came out and showed them a round black hole in the ground. Whatever could it be? They tiptoed to it just as the moon went in again. They shone their torches on it briefly. It's a coal hole, said Dick, astonished. Why didn't we see it before? Look, there's the lid just beside it. It's been left open. I suppose the moon was in last time we came by this part of the house. I can't think how we didn't notice it. Julian was uneasy. I didn't see it before, certainly. It's strange. Could it be a trap, do you think? I don't see how it could be, said Dick. Come on, let's get down. At least it's a way in. He shone his torch into the hole. Yes, look. There's a whole lot of coke down there. We can easily jump onto it. Tim, you go first and spy out the land. Timmy jumped down at once, the coke slithering away from beneath his four paws. He's down all right, said Julian. I'll go next, then you. Down they jumped and the coke slithered away again, making what seemed to be a very loud noise in the silent night. Julian shone his torch around. They were standing on a very large heap of coke in the middle of a big cellar. At the end was a door. Hope it's not locked, said Dick in a whisper. Now, Tim, keep to heel for goodness sake. 
and don't make a sound. They went to the door, treading on gritty bits of coke. Julian turned the dirty handle, and the door opened inwards. It's not locked, said Julian thankfully. They crept through it, Timmy treading on their heels, and found themselves in another cellar, set with stone shelves, on which were piled tins and boxes and crates. Enough food here to stand a siege, whispered Dick. Where are the cellar steps? We've got to get out. Over there, said Julian. Then he stopped and put out his torch. He had heard something. Did you hear that? he whispered. It sounded like somebody treading on the coke in the coal cellar. Gosh, I hope nobody is shadowing us. We'll soon be prisoners if so. They listened but heard nothing further. Up the stone steps they went and undid the door at the top. A big kitchen lay beyond, lit by the dim moon. A shadow rose suddenly in front of them, and Timmy growled. Dick's heart almost stopped beating. What in the world was that, crawling silently over the floor and disappearing in the shadows? He clutched at Julian and made him jump. Don't do that, ass! That was only the kitchen cat you saw, whispered Julian. Gosh, you made me jump! Wasn't it a good thing that Timmy didn't go for the cat? There would have been an awful yowling. Where do you suppose George will be? asked Dick. Somewhere at the top of the house. I've no idea. We'll just have to look into every room, said Julian. So they looked into every room on the ground floor, but they were empty. They were huge rooms, ugly and over-furnished. Come on, up the stairs, said Dick and up they went. They came to an enormous landing, hung with tapestry curtains at the windows. Timmy suddenly gave a small growl, and in a trice both boys had hidden themselves in the folds of the long window curtains. Timmy went with them, feeling surprised. Dick peeped out after a minute. I think it was that cat again, he whispered. Look, there it is, up on that chest. It's following us. "'Wondering what on earth we're doing, I expect.' "'Blow it,' said Julian. "'I'm getting the jitters now, being watched by a shadowy cat. "'I suppose it is real.' "'Timmy thinks so,' said Dick. "'Come on, there are any amount of bedroom doors on this landing.' "'They tiptoed into the ones whose doors were open, "'but no one was sleeping in the beds there. "'They came to a closed door and listened.' Someone was snoring inside. That's not George, said Dick. Anyway, she'd be locked in, and the key is in this door. They went to the next door, which was also shut. They listened and could hear someone breathing heavily. Not George, said Dick, and they went on up to the next flight of stairs. There were four more rooms there, two of them not even furnished. The doors of the other two were ajar, and it was clear that people were sleeping in them, because once more there was loud breathing to be heard. There don't seem to be any more rooms, said Dick in dismay, as they flashed their torches carefully round the top landing. Blow! Where's George, then? Look, there's a little wooden door there, said Julian in Dick's ear. A door leading into the cistern room, I should think.
She wouldn't be there, said Dick. But wait, look, there's a strong bolt on the door. And cistern rooms don't have bolts on their doors, or even locks. This one hasn't a lock, but it has a bolt. Shh, not so loud, said Julian. Yes, that's funny, I must say. How can we get the door open without waking the people in those other two rooms? We'll shut their doors very quietly and we'll lock them, said Dick, excited. I'll go and do it. He drew the doors gently too and then locked first one and then the other, having taken the keys from the other side of the doors to do so. Except that one made a slight click as he locked it. There was no noise. Nobody stirred in the two rooms, and the boys breathed freely again. They went to the little wooden door opposite. They pulled gently at the bolt, afraid that it might squeak. But it didn't. It was obviously quite new and ran easily. The door opened outwards with a small creak. There was pitch darkness inside, and the sound of trickling water from the cistern. Dick flashed his torch on and off quickly. In that second, he saw something that made his heart jump. There was a small mattress on the floor of the little cistern room, and someone was lying on it, rolled so completely in blankets that even the head was covered. Julian had seen it too, and he put his arm on Dick's, afraid that it might not be George, afraid that it might be someone who would give the alarm, perhaps another prisoner. But Timmy knew who it was. Timmy ran straight in with a small loving whimper and flung himself on the sleeping figure. Dick shut the cistern door at once, afraid of the noise being heard. Timmy might bark with joy in a moment, or George might shout. The figure gave a grunt and sat up. The blanket fell away from the head, and there was George's curly mop and her startled face. Shh, said Dick raising his finger warningly. Shh! Timmy was licking George from head to foot, wild with delight, but extraordinarily silent. Clever old Timmy knew that this was one of the times when joy must be dumb. Oh, said George, hugging Timmy anywhere she could. Oh, Timmy, I missed you so. Darling, darling Tim. Oh, Timmy! Dick stood by the closed door, listening to find out if anyone was stirring in the other rooms. He heard nothing at all. Julian went to George. Are you all right, George? he asked. Have you been treated well? Not very, said George. But then I didn't behave very well. I did quite a lot of kicking and biting, so they locked me in here. Poor old George, said Julian. Well, we'll hear everything when we've got out of here. So far, we've been jolly lucky. Can you come now? Yes, said George, and got off the mattress. She was dressed in an odd selection of clothes and looked rather peculiar. That awful old woman, Gringo's mother, found these for me when I was taken to the caravan, she said. Gosh, I've got a lot to tell you. Shh, said Dick at the door. Not a sound now. I'm going to open the door. He opened it slowly. All was quiet. Now we'll go down the stairs, he said. Not a sound. 
they went down the first flight of stairs and onto the enormous landing. Then, just as Dick put his foot onto the next stair down, he trod on something soft that yowled, spat and scratched. It was that cat! Dick fell halfway down the stairs and Timmy could not stop himself from chasing the cat up the landing and up the top stairs to the cistern room, nor could he stop himself from barking. Shouts came from two of the nearby bedrooms and two men appeared in pyjamas. One switched on the landing light and then both of them tore down the stairs after the three children. Dick picked himself up but he had ricked his ankle and could not even walk. Run, George! I'll see to Dick, yelled Julian. But George stopped too, and in a trice the two men were onto them, catching hold of Dick and Julian and jerking them into a nearby room. Tim! Tim! shouted George. Help, Timmy! But before Timmy could come pelting down the stairs from the attic, George was shoved into the room too, and the door locked. Look out for the dog! shouted one of the men. He's dangerous! Timmy certainly was. He came tearing towards the men, snarling, his eyes blazing, showing all his teeth. The men darted into the room next to the one into which they had locked the children and banged the door. Timmy flung himself against it in rage, snarling and growling in a most terrifying manner. If only he could get at those men! If only he could! Chapter 21 Most Unexpected Soon there was real pandemonium in the old house. The sleepers in the rooms on the top landing awoke suddenly and found their doors locked and began to bang on them and shout. The three children in the locked room on the ground floor shouted and banged too and Timmy nearly went mad. Only the men in the room next to the children were silent. They were terrified at Timmy's growling and snarling. They would have liked to lock themselves in, but the key was on the other side of the door, and they certainly didn't dare to open it to get the key. Soon the children quietened down. Dick sat on a chair, exhausted. That cat! That wretched, prowling, sly old cat! Gosh, I stepped on it and it scratched me to the bone! to say nothing of pitching me headlong down the stairs and making me wrench my ankle. We so nearly managed to escape, groaned Julian. I can't think what will happen now, said George. Timmy's out there and can't get in to us, and we can't possibly get out to him because the door's locked, and those men won't dare to set a foot outside their door while Tim's there. And we've locked the people into their rooms upstairs, said Julian. Well, it's certain that nobody can get out of their rooms to help anyone else. So it looks as if we'll all be here till doomsday. It certainly did seem a very poor lookout. The only people who were not behind locked doors were the two men, whoever they were, and they simply dared not put a foot outside their room. Timmy roamed about occasionally whimpering and scratching outside the children's door, but more often growling outside the next door, sometimes flinging his heavy body against it as if he would break it down. I bet the men are shaking with fright, said Dick. 
They won't even dare to try and get out of a window in case they meet Timmy outside somewhere. Serve them right, said George. Gosh, I'm glad you came. Wasn't I an absolute ass to take Sally down to the kennel that night? You were, said Julian. I agree wholeheartedly. The men were waiting for a chance to get Berta, of course, and they saw you, complete with Berta's dog, and thought you were the girl they wanted. Yes, they flung something all over my head so that I couldn't make a sound, said George. I fought like anything, and my dressing gown belt must have slipped off. Did you find it? Yes, said Dick. We were jolly glad to find a few other things too. The comb, the hanky, the sweet, and, of course, the note. They carried me quite away to somewhere in the wood, said George. Then they plumped me down in the back of the car. But they had to turn it, and it was difficult. And I had the bright thought of throwing out all the things in my dressing gown pocket, just in case you came along and saw them. What about that note with the word gringo on? asked Julian. That was a terrific help. We wouldn't be here tonight if it hadn't been for that. Well, I heard one of the men call the other gringo, said George. And it was such an unusual name. I thought I'd scribble it on a bit of paper and throw that out too. It was just on chance I did it. A jolly good chance, said Dick. Good thing you had a notebook and pencil with you. I hadn't, said George, but one of the men had left his coat in the back of the car and there was a notebook with a pencil in the breast pocket. I just used that. Jolly good, said Julian. Well, they whisked me off in the car to some fairground or other, said George. I heard the roundabout music next day. There was a horrid old witch-like woman in the caravan. She didn't seem at all pleased to see me. I had to sleep in a chair that night, and I got so wild that I yelled and shouted and threw things about and smashed quite a lot of cups and saucers. <laughs> I enjoyed that. The boys couldn't help laughing. Yes, I bet you did, said Dick. They had to move the caravan away from the fair itself because they were afraid people would hear you. In fact, I expect that's why Gringo decided to hide you here. Yes, I suddenly felt a jolt and found the caravan we were in was being towed away, said George. I was awfully surprised. I waved at the windows and shouted as we drove through the streets, but nobody seemed to notice anything wrong. In fact, some people waved back to me. Then we swung in through some gates and came here. And, as I told you, they put me up here because I made such a nuisance of myself. Did you tell them you weren't, Berta? asked Dick. No, said George, of course not. For two reasons. I knew there would be no fear of Berta's father giving those secrets away because he'd be told by you that I had been kidnapped, not his precious Berta. So he'd hang on to them. And also I thought Berta would be safe so long as I didn't tell the men they'd got the wrong person. You're a good kid, George, said Julian and slapped her gently on the back. A very good kid. I'm jolly proud of you. There's nobody like our George. Don't be an idiot, said George, but she was very pleased all the same. Well, there's no more to tell, she said, except that the cistern room was most frightfully draughty and I had to wrap my head up as well as my body when I lay down. And the cistern made 
awful noises, sort of rude noises that made me want to say, I beg your pardon, all the time. Of course, I knew you'd rescue me, so I wasn't awfully worried. And we haven't rescued you, said Julian. All we've done is to get ourselves locked up as well as you. Tell me how you found out I was here, said George. So the boys told her everything, and she listened, thrilled. So, Berta went to stay with Joe, she said. I bet Joe didn't like that. She didn't, said Julian. But she's been quite a help. I only wish she were here now and could do one of her ivy-climbing stunts or something. I say, Timmy's very quiet all of a sudden, said George, listening. What's happened? They listened. Timmy was not barking or whimpering. There was no sound from him at all. What was happening? George's heart sank. Perhaps those men had managed to do something to him. But suddenly they heard him again, whimpering, but whimpering gladly and excitedly. And then a familiar voice came to their ears. Dick! Julian! Where are you? Gosh! It's Joe! said Dick, astounded. He limped to the door. We're in here, Joe! Unlock the door! Joe unlocked it and looked in, grinning. Timmy tore in like a whirlwind and flung himself on George, almost knocking her over. Dick limped out of the room. Immediately, Joe rushed in, much to everyone's astonishment. Then he returned, looking rather pleased with himself. Let's go while the going's good, he said. Yes, but be careful. Those men will be out now that Timmy isn't there to guard them, cried Julian, suddenly realising that the two angry fellows could easily escape while Timmy was in with them and might lock the door on the lot of them. Timmy too. It's all right. There's no desperate hurry, said Dick. I thought of that. I slipped out and locked their door on them as soon as Joe rushed into us. And there they can stay till the police arrive in the morning. They can then collect the whole lot, the men upstairs too. And I'm sure the police will be quite pleased to search the house and the cellars, said Julian. There will be plenty of stuff here that they will be interested in. Well, let's go at once. They called a cheery goodbye to the two men. We're off! shouted Dick. You'd better look out for the dog in case he gets you. They all went down the hall, Dick hobbling, for his ankle was still painful. We might as well leave in style, said Julian, and unbolted and unlocked the front door. Also, it would be as well to leave this door open for the police to come in by. I don't expect they will want to come in through the coal hole. It was a good idea of yours to let the men think we were leaving Tim behind to guard them, Dick. They won't dare even to climb out of the windows in case he's waiting for them. We've left a good many lights on, said George, looking back. <laughs> Never mind, we're not paying the bill. Come on, Timmy, out into the dark, dark night. They went down the front steps and into the dark drive. Everyone felt safe with Timmy running ahead. Joe, exactly how did you get here? said Dick suddenly. You were forbidden to come. I know, said Joe. 
Well, I just took Anne's bike and followed you, that's all. And I walked in through the front gates when you'd left them open, of course. That was easy. Gosh, I kept feeling there was someone behind me, said Dick. And there was. It was you, you little horror. No wonder Timmy didn't bother to bark or growl. Yes, it was me, said Joe. And I followed you round and round the house while you were trying to get in. And I thought you never would see that coal hole. So I took the lid off and put it on the ground, hoping you'd see it then. And you did. So you did that, said Dick. I must say I was astonished to see it. I knew he must have passed it before. So that was you too. You want a good telling off, you disobedient, cheeky little wretch. Joe laughed. I couldn't bear you to go off without me, she said. It's a good thing I did come. I waited and waited inside that coal hole for you to come back with George. And when you didn't, I left the coal hole and got into the house. And Timmy heard me and came running down the stairs. He nearly knocked me over, he was that pleased. Here are the gates at last, said George. What are we going to do about bikes? There isn't one for me. Joe can stand behind on my step and hold on to my shoulder, said Julian. You take Anne's bike, George. We'll leave these gates open. The police ought to be pleased with us for saving them so much trouble. Off they went down the steep hill, Timmy running behind, his tail wagging happily. He had got George back again. All was well again in his doggy world. Chapter 22 These kids sure are wonderful. What shrieks and shouts there were from Joanna and Anne when the four arrived at Kirin Cottage at last at half past three in the morning. Joanna was awake, but Anne had just gone to sleep. She was sleeping in Joanna's room for company, and Sally was there too. The stories had to be told again and again. First Dick, then Julian, then George, then Joe. They all talked without stopping, excited and happy. Sally ran from one to the other and followed Timmy about, but sometimes her little stiff tail drooped when she remembered that Berta was not there. I say, said Dick, suddenly drawing back the sitting-room curtains, it's daylight, the sun's up, and all the time I've been thinking it was still night. No use going to bed then, said Joe at once. She was so much enjoying this that she felt as if she never wanted it to stop. Well, I suppose it isn't said Joanna. I know what we'll do. We'll have a big breakfast now. A very big one to celebrate. And then we'll all go back to bed and sleep till lunchtime. We're tired out, really. Just look at our black-rimmed eyes and pale cheeks. Joanna, we're all as sunburnt as can be. You're just making that up, said George. Come on, let's get this celebration breakfast going. Bacon... Eggs, tomatoes, fried bread, oh, and mushrooms too. Have you got any mushrooms, Joanna? And lots and lots of hot coffee and toast and marmalade. I'm ravenous. They discovered that they all were, and twenty minutes later they sat at the table tucking in as if they had eaten nothing for a month.
I can't eat a thing more, said Dick. And I don't know what's happened to my eyes. They keep closing. So do mine, said George with an enormous yawn. Joanna, don't say we've got to do the washing up, will you? Of course not, said Joanna. Go on, up to your beds now. Don't even bother to undress. I feel as if there's something I ought to do. But I can't remember it, said Julian sleepily, staggering upstairs. I just can't remember. He flopped on his bed and was asleep as soon as his head fell on the pillow. In two minutes, everyone but Joanna was asleep too. Joanna stopped to give Timmy a drink, and then he bounded up to George and curled up in the crook of her knees as usual. Joanna went to lie down too, thinking she would just have a rest but not go to sleep. But in half a second, she slept too. The sun rose higher in the sky. The milkman came whistling up the path and left four bottles of milk on the step. The gulls in the bay circled and soared and called loudly, but nobody stirred in Kirin Cottage. A car came up to the front gate and another one followed. Out of the first stepped Uncle Quentin, Aunt Fanny, Mr Elba Wright and Berta. Out of the second car stepped the sergeant and his constable. Berta flew to the front door, but it was shut. She raced round to the garden door. That was locked too, and so was the kitchen door. Pops, we'll have to ring. All the doors are locked, she called. And then, from up above, came a sound of excited barking, and Sally's head appeared at a bedroom window. When she saw it really was Berta down below, she tore down the stairs and scraped at the front door. What's happened? Where is everyone? said Aunt Fanny in amazement. All the doors locked? But it's ten o'clock in the morning. Where are the children? I've got my key, said Uncle Quentin, and he put it into the front door lock. He opened the door and Sally leapt straight into Berta's arms, licking her face from forehead to chin. Aunt Fanny went into the hall and called, Anyone at home? No answer. Timmy heard her call, but as George did not stir, he didn't either. He was not going to leave George for a minute, not even to go downstairs. Aunt Fanny walked into all the rooms on the ground floor. Nobody there. She marvelled at the remains of the meal spread all over the dining room table, and even more at the dirty pans and dishes in the kitchen. What was Joanna thinking of? Where was everybody? She did not expect George to be there, because she knew George had been kidnapped. But where in the world were all the others? She went upstairs, and her husband followed, with Berta and her father. They were all feeling most astonished now. They went into Julian's room. Good gracious, he was there then. And Dick, too, lying floppily on their beds, absolutely sound asleep. Aunt Fanny couldn't understand it. And then she went into the girls' room. And there was Anne fast asleep, too. And, good gracious, could that be George? 
But surely George was kidnapped. Then how? Why? Where? Her mother suddenly put her arms round the sleeping George and kissed her and hugged her. She had worried so much about her, and now here she was, safe and sound after all. George awoke at once. She sat up and gazed at her mother and father in astonishment. Oh, you're back! Oh, how lovely! When did you come? Just now, said her mother. But George, why is everyone asleep? And how did you get here? We thought you were. Oh, mother! Yes, of course. You don't know half the story, do you? Said George. Gosh, there's Berta here too, and your pops, Berta. <laughs> Hello, everyone. She was still so sleepy that she was not quite sure whether this was a dream or not. But then Anne woke up and squealed, and that woke Julian and Dick. They came into the very crowded bedroom, and soon there was such a noise that Joanna and Joe in the room above awoke too. Down they came, looking very dishevelled. Joanna, full of apologies. She rushed downstairs to put some coffee on and bumped into the two policemen in the hall. She screamed. "Excuse me," said the sergeant to Joanna. "Isn't anyone ever coming down again? We're supposed to be guarding Berter." "Oh my! You don't need to do that now," said Joanna. "Didn't Julian telephone you last night?、Uh, this morning, I mean. I thought he was going to." "What about?" said the sergeant. "About the kidnappers. Everything's all right," explained Joanna to the two astonished policemen. We've got George back, and oh, bless us all! There's those kidnappers. You haven't been told they're all locked up and waiting for you, have you? Look here, what are you talking about? Said the sergeant, bewildered. This is too bad. What do you mean, kidnappers locked up and waiting? Julian called Joanna. The police are here. And you forgot to telephone and tell them what happened last night. They'd better go to that house and get the men, hadn't they? I knew there was something I'd forgotten," said Julian, running down the stairs. "I didn't mean to telephone, but I was so tired that I forgot." Everyone then came downstairs and went into the sitting room. Joe was shy with so many people there, and wouldn't sit anywhere near the two policemen. I've just been told, Mister Wright, that there is no need to guard your daughter now," said the sergeant rather stiffly. "Seems as if the police are the last to hear about anything." Well, the fact of the matter is that we found out that Gringo, who owns the fair called Gringo's Fair, was paid to kidnap Berta," said Julian. "He kidnapped George instead by mistake. We found out where Gringo had taken her." And went to rescue her last night. You go on, Dick. And we left Gringo and somebody else locked up in a room on the ground floor, and two other people locked up in a top floor room. And we've left the front door open for you and the drive gates open too," said Dick. So don't be too annoyed about it, Sergeant, because we really have tried to make things easy for you. We've rescued George, as you see, and now you can get the men. The sergeant looked as if he found it difficult to believe a single word. 
Uncle Quentin tapped him sharply on the shoulder. Well, look alive, man. They'll escape before you can get them if you don't hurry. What's the address? said the sergeant stolidly. I don't know the name of the house or the lane it's in, said Julian, but you go through the village of Twining, turn to the left, and it's the house up on the hill. How did you find out all this? said the sergeant. It's too long to tell you now, said Dick. We'll write it all down in a book and send you a copy. We'll call it... Uh, we'll call it... What shall we call it, you others? It's a peculiar adventure, really. It ended with everyone fast asleep in bed. I want some coffee, announced Uncle Quentin. I think we've talked enough. Do go and catch your kidnappers, my good men. The policeman disappeared. Mr. Elber Wright beamed round happily, Bertha on his knee. Well, this is a very happy ending, he said, and I can take my little Bertha back with me after all. Oh, no, wailed Bertha, much to her father's surprise. What do you mean? he asked. Gee, Pops, be a honey and let me stay on here, begged Bertha. These kids sure are wonderful. Wonderful, 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 chanted the others. Of course let her stay on if she'd like to, said Aunt Fanny. But as a girl this time, not a boy. George heaved a sigh of relief. That was all right then. She wouldn't mind Berta as a girl, even though she was a silly girl. Woof, said Timmy suddenly, and made everyone jump. He says he's jolly pleased you're staying, Berta, because now Sally Dog will have to stay too, said Dick, so he'll have someone to play with as well. Shall we really send the sergeant a book about this adventure, said Anne. Did you really mean it, Dick? Rather, said Dick, our fourteenth adventure, and may we have many more. What shall we call the book? I know, said George at once. I know. Let's call it Five Have Plenty of Fun. Well, they did. And they hope you like it. <laughs>